In Italy, Russia has always used is its own propaganda tools, so which is more in recent years we have come to to know and recognize. But for China, it took a longer time, and even now there are those who do not recognize propaganda from verified news. The stroke of genius uh, for me that China had was not to use its international tools, but to insert itself into the great economic crisis in publishing and media sector. Hello and welcome to Think Atlantic, a podcast series by IRI's Transatlantic Strategic Division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. My name is Thibaut Mazurk and I'm your host for this show. Today we are going to talk about how both Russia and China work to increase their influence in European politics. This is a very wide debate and a very wide issue. So to give it a little bit of focus, we have decided to focus on one case study, which is Italy. And as it happens, I know someone who actually wrote a book about it. So my very special guest today is my good friend Giulia Pompili from the Italian newspaper Il Folio. If uh, you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you may remember Giulia from a previous episode. I her uh, last year. Giulia is a well-known journalist, as I said, at Il Folio, which is one of the main newspapers in Italy. She covers Eastern Asia for the newspaper, but she's also the author of the Catane newsletter. And we had her last year to come and talk talk about her previous book, uh, Sotto lo stesso cello, and she discussed this with Mantas Adomenas, the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs of Lithuania. And this time I'm having her on the show because she just published a new book in Italian, co-written with Valerio Valentini, and the book is called Al cuore dell'Italia. Uh, it's only in Italian for the moment, but the, the full title translates as To the Heart of Italy, How Russia and China Are Trying to Conquer the Country. So pretty much exactly the topic that we're going to discuss today. Julia, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today during a busy promo period for your book and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Thibault. It's a real pleasure. Okay, so Julia, this is not usually how book talks start, but I'm going to reverse here. I would like to start this conversation by the end, so to speak, and, and like to discuss the last chapter of your book when you, you transport the reader back in the spring of 2020. And from an Italian perspective, it really looks like the apocalypse. So uh, let me set the stage for you guys. Italy is in full lockdown at that time because we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and or rather at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Italy at that time is the European epicenter of COVID-19. But what is important for this conversation is that at this very time, Italy finds itself at the center of a number of controversies with China over medical equipment delivery, development of vaccines as well. There are uh, Russian spies roaming around the country. And it seems actually that the only people who at that time are allowed to go out and to be basically free to roam wherever they want are Russian and Chinese agents, not to call them spies. So can you explain to our listeners what happened in the spring of 2020, and maybe briefly enlighten us on, on why and how a, a major country like Italy, a G7 country, one of the 10, 15 biggest economies in the world, got into the situation of extreme vulnerability. 
Yes, sure. Well, <laughs> complicated question. First of all, the context. In the spring of 2020, Italy is a, as this uh, coalition government formed by two parties. On one side, there's the Democratic Party, and on the other side, the very populistic formation, the Five Star Movement. A few months earlier, the Democratic Party effectively replaced the League uh, led by Matteo Salvini, as you remember. The League and the Five Star Movement are particularly ambiguous on both relations with China and Russia, and especially the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte, who remains uh, at the head of the government despite the changing political forces supporting him. But anyway, in 2020, as you said, uh, Italy is the first Western country to face the pandemic and the first cases completely blindside this strange coalition government. And it becomes an emergency. There is a need for masks, intensive care supplies. Yet the members of this government seems to be competing with each other you know, uh, to show that they, are, they have the situation under control. And prominent among them is Luigi Di Maio, the then foreign minister, the same person who had a few months year, earlier as a minister of economic development had put his signatures to, on the MOU on the Belt and Road uh, with China. Anyway, during the, the emergency, there had been talks between the president of the Italian Red Cross, uh, who is also the president of the International Red Cross, uh, and the president of the Chinese Red Cross. The two agreed on donations from the Chinese side to the Italian side. That's where the leadership in Beijing must have realized that there was an opportunity here to start some kind of so-called mask diplomacy. The next day, when the first aid from China arrived in Rome, the Red Cross representatives were overshadowed completely by the political representative. Uh, welcoming the cargo at the Rome airport is the Chinese ambassador to Rome. Then during a press conference, uh, the presence of Minister Di Maio, Minister Di Maio tells to Italian journalists, you see, I did well to sign the MOU on Belting Road. This is the health silk road that is saving us. He said exactly that. What we only find out later is that Italy was committing to buy billions of equipment, including masks and ECU, from the Chinese companies. It was an enormous propaganda spot for China, which, but, which was coming from the cause of the pandemic disruptor to the Good Samaritan. But it was also a huge benefit from China's export perspective. What did the Chinese bring to, with the cargo that day? In addition to the masks, several doctors who will tour Italian hospitals for a month, bags of blood and traditional Chinese medicine, of course, and also some equipment for ICU that the Italian doctors did not know how to use. Anyway, shortly uh, after this first handover ceremony of the Chinese uh, to Rome, Russia also begins to want to bring its help uh, to Italy. So the communication between the Russian embassy and the Italian government intensified, and within a few days, the mission was organized. It was a, a real military mission. Uh, when the cargo plane is about to land to Protica di Mara, I remember our military airport, our intelligence starts to get a little worried because no one knows who is going to get off and what will be in it. When the Russian arrives actually with doctors and intelligence members to in the same military vehicles that we saw now in Ukraine, they do something like a parade from Rome to Bergamo, uh, the Italian city most affected by the pandemic, like 600 kilometers. 
And once they arrived, they put medicians and doctors, uh, Russian doctors, uh, was put to Italian hospitals to help. But then they start asking to move their inspections to hospital, particularly closer to the NATO bases in Italy, a strange request. And then the Italian intelligence stopped the mission, the Russian mission. So that is the landscape where we are moving in the spring of 2020. So if I could, if with that in a nutshell, basically China and Russia come in and say they're going to help. But first of all, the help is not free. They apparently, the poor Italians uh, who are the epicenter of the, of the pandemic and had to deal with, with this virus were probably used both by Chinese and by Russian uh, doctors uh, whenever they were doctors as guinea pigs. And basically, Italian infrastructures were submitted to espionage and an espionage that was very, very free because, well, basically nobody else was really able to, to move around the country, right? So, I mean, to understand, I mean, you, you started to talk about that, but why is it and how is it that basically that the government found itself, I mean, obviously the first thing that you think about is like, what were they thinking? And you said, well, they were competing with each other for, for favors, for doing each other thing. Uh, Roberto Speranza, the Minister of Health at the time, was kind of very laudative. He was very positive about the, the Chinese experience and everything. But there is also something, right? There was this signing of the Belt and Road Initiative, and, and there was a rapprochement under the, the previous government with uh, Russia. So was it deliberate policy from the previous government that went wrong, or was, was there something else to that? For sure, there was an help by the, this kind of approach that we had in the previous years of the League Five Star Movement government. And the Russians and Chinese were very close to some of the government special advisors and representatives from the institutions. So they had direct dialogue with the government. And of course, they tried to use the emergency situation that we had. There was like months of, of real emergency when no one knows how to deal with the pandemic and to, uh, with the spread of the virus. So it was, a, I think it was a school example of uh, how they know people, how they are lavish with people and the same people uh, when they are in trouble they can use it for for their gain it's a perfect example of that indeed super interesting julia so now i'd like to go back to the beginning of the book because basically as i said you know what we've been describing is pretty much the last chapter of the book and the, the rest of the book from beginning until the, the penultimate chapter, so to speak, is about how we get there. And it's really super interesting. But what I find really interesting is that you analyze at the same time with your co-author the process, the way of Russian and Chinese influence at the same time, right? There are separate chapters, but you really see parallel path of how the Russians and the Chinese deliberately try to increase their influence in Italy. And I find this interesting because very often you see books that focus on Russian influence in a country or Chinese influence in a country, but very rarely you see the two at the same time. So I'd like to ask you a question because this approach is uncommon. So what do you learn from it? I mean, are there, can we compare, are there similarities between the ways the Chinese Communist Party and Jin's regime are trying 
or have tried rather to, to capture Italian elites, or are these two very different things? Yes, it was uh, very interesting indeed. By studying the two approaches in parallel, there seems to be a definite pattern they share. Russians in Italy are more familiar, of course, for historical reasons and the geographical proximity of the country, but also the proximity of the Italian Communist Party to the Soviet Union. It had. On the other side, China is something new, but it has been building this, this strategic uh, influence in Italy for years, uh, targeting groups that support the Chinese Communist Party, but also the anti-American, anti-NATO, and in general, the anti-system groups. For both countries, both China and Russia, there is an effort to destabilize and to promote disinformation. Among the differences uh, is that the Russians are very muscular and very clear when they go about uh, lobbying for the Kremlin. Their favorite weapon is blackmail, for example. What about China? China is more is much more less clear. They use economic coercion as a tool. However, the most important thing is that both China and Russia, the groups they support are back they back are almost the same the anti-system anti-american anti-nato so yeah let's have a look very very interesting in terms of the i mean the differences the similarities and differences between their approach and and thank you for giving me the perfect segue to to my next question which is i mean let's focus on people, the Italians, those Italian people that are that become knowingly or unknowingly agents, so to speak, of Russian propaganda or Chinese influence in Italy. And I mean, you are both of you are journalists with uh, Valerio Valentini. And so this is a work of, of investigative journalism. And, and obviously in these works of Hesse, in these works of uh, investigative journalism, there are names that on a, on a regular basis, right, that you have Beppe Grillo, the leader of the Five Star Movement on the political side, with people like Manlio Di, Di Stefano, Michele Geracci, and, and there are plenty others. I don't want to do name dropping here, but there, there are a number of recurring uh, figures and people who pop up once or twice in the in the uh, book. So what I'd like to talk about is these people's profiles, so to speak. I mean, obviously, we have different diverse profiles. Some of them are politicians, others others are not. Some are, are specialist scholars who become ministers or, or deputy ministers. So, but what, what do they have in common, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that, I mean, before being pro-Russian or pro-Chinese, they're basically anti-American and anti-NATO. So anti-American, I guess, is a, anti-Americanism is, is, I guess, a, mo- a motive. But you mentioned also that their closeness to the populist movement, although there, there are some people who are advocates, let's say, of, of China or Russia who, who are in the mainstream in Italy. But what do you see as the, the, the features that kind of unite this, this group of people who have been promoting uh, Russia and China, Italians who have been promoting Russia and China in Italy? For sure, China, like Russia, they know which profiles to focus on. They know exactly the profile of the man who will support them. There are people who, for example, have a few opportunities in Italy, in academia or science, and they are for a career, a purpose for the life. But it's something more related to a psychologist, not a journalist. We, We see a pattern there. Sometimes, of course, it's simply about money. They offer a career with a lot of money and then 
they support the life, lifestyle. I think as far as uh, Italy is concerned, it is mostly a matter of human weakness. Obviously, the case changes when we talk about politicians or representatives of the institutions. Then there we can say that there is something more related to ideology. But really often it's not about ideology, but about human weaknesses. So basically people are attracted by the money, maybe also by narrative, right? The narrative of Putin or the narrative of the growing power with China, right? Yes. Do you remember Alessandro Di Battista, one of the leaders of the Five Star Movement? He said in a very famous uh, contribute on a newspaper, he wrote that uh, China will win the Third World War and we will be on the right side of history. That was a statement that revealed everything about him, uh, <laughs> about to be on the right side is to be on the winner side. Uh, so it's about more about, of course, ideology, but also to be too weakness to build something in your country that is uh, competitive to another completely different system and to be attractive to be to this other completely different system. It's complicated, uh, but I think that they both China and Russia, they know exactly the profile of this kind of people and they approach exactly them. And so these people then, I mean, some of them stay, work within the parties, within the apparatus of political parties, of different different institutions, and some go very, some would say go very, very public, right? They make declarations, some of them are politicians, but others are basically going out with the propaganda or like showing the propaganda of China, of the PRC and Putin's Russia. And I think we've, we've had a lot of examples in Italy, actually, particularly during the the first uh, stages of the war, uh, again, I don't want to name too many names, but I think Alessandro Orsini is really a, a very, very important figure in the Putinosphere, let's say, that was very... Even with him, it's about a psychologist and not about <laughs> journalism. Well, he himself is a sociologist, right, of terrorism. So I, I guess he would be... a interesting like self-analysis to do but like, now we're entering the the world of the media right and I, one found one part of the book i found really fascinating and we've had those discussions in private before but i'd like you to talk about it and, and, and share it with our listeners is this really interesting feature this really interesting thing that happened over the past few few years with the this attempt by by chinese but actually also russian institutions to to influence and even control the italian press and and the way they do it is not necessarily by attacking news outlets or by attacking journals newspapers but through the the, the, the news agencies and uh, you mentioned in the book this deal between the chinese news agency xinhua and the Italian national news agency, ANSA. Can you tell us a bit more about that? And maybe an additional question. Do you see a link between these efforts to, to influence the media scene in Italy and the current news coverage about the war in Ukraine in, in some of the Italian press today, which is, let's put it that way, very, very nuanced, so to speak? Yes, sure. In Italy, Russia has always used its own propaganda tools, so which is more in recent years, we have come to, to know and recognize. But for China, it took a longer time. And even now, there are those who 
to not recognize propaganda from verified news. The stroke of genius uh, for me that China had was not to use its international tools, but to insert itself into the great economic crisis in publishing and media sector. You know, in several uh, newspapers or TV stations, uh, they started offering funds exactly as they were buying advertising spaces, but passed them off as uh, journalistic contributions. And the deal that you mentioned with the news agency ANSA was the most important case for me. The agreement was signed right along with the MOU on Belt and Road, and it provided for the major Italian news agency simply to translate Xinhua uh, news into Italian. So, for for example, for uh, an Italian desk reporter reading a news story on Xinjiang, who did not specialize in Chinese issue, for example, did not know he was reading actually Xinhua, but he thought, okay, this is answer reporting. This went on for almost three years. In other newspapers, uh, Italian newspapers, they were buying pages and space to promote China, not like an advertising still, but like a journalistic uh, reporting. Now something has changed. There is a little more attention to certain controversial things. But even thought on many, many, many talk shows, as you mentioned, after the 24th of February, on television, you can still see people defending uh, China or Russia to the hilt. So something that we cannot stop, uh, the money that they bring into the media company, it's more and more under scrutiny by the institutions and by the public, of course. But still for about the talk show, TV talks, uh, the um, Chinese and Russian propaganda uh, that is very connected in this case, because as you know, uh, they are more or less the same when it comes to the Russian war against Ukraine is still now very nuanced, <laughs> as you said, in the Italian television. That's a very diplomatic way to say it, right? Y- yes, yes. We have several people who are still on TV defending the role of China, the role of Russia. And uh, as a journalist, I, I really don't know why, why they are invited. One of the explanations we have is to produce more debate in a very easy way. On the other side, the, the danger of this uh, narrative, uh, we will see the, the consequences in the in next few years. Mm, indeed. And I mean, uh, interestingly enough, Alessandro Orsini is that person that we mentioned is still invited on, on TV channels, on public TV channels, even though he was claiming at the very beginning of the of the special operation, so to speak, that Ukraine had, al- had already lost the war. He then claimed that Ukraine would never win back any territory, then that it wouldn't be that Kherson, the, the counteroffensive in Kherson was not working, that there was, it was no use to, to try and retake Kherson, etc., etc. And the gentleman is still, is still invited on, on television, which is really remarkable. But I, I found that, I mean, this is this is something that we actually see in other in other countries. I mean, in, in my uh, home country, I I see in France that probably a bit less, but but still there are some uh, Russian propagandists who continue to be invited. Although I don't think we invited Padugin to 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 talk or, or or Lavrov for an interview. But what I really found interesting was this 
you know, this uh, thing of will, so to speak, between news agencies and the fact that through through this way, by this predicament, uh, so to speak, the Chinese were basically able to to whitewash, really, I mean, I think that's the that's really the, the term to whitewash their news and transform them into Italian news who would be then taken as immediately reliable. So anyway, this is really fascinating. And I think it, it's asking a lot of of questions, right, about, you know, how do we preserve the freedom of the press in an environment in which, frankly, we have a number of people who really don't want that freedom of the press. But I, I don't want us to finish on this, you know, uh, sort of negative negativity, because we talked about what happened prior to 2020. And the thing is that things have gone better since. And I think you you mentioned it for, for the press that the deal now is no longer, no longer exactly in place between the news agencies. And once we realized how Italy had become vulnerable, then there was a reaction from the political class. And obviously, you know, Mario Draghi and, and now the current prime minister seems to be going, Giorgia Meloni seems to be going in the same direction, more or less, on, on foreign affairs. So now we, we have a government that is committed to, to right the wrong, so to speak. But Draghi made it almost too easy to escape from the clutches of Russian and Chinese influence. So would you say that all the damage done was undone or, 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 or that there, there are still major issues that are, the government faces? And, and what are the next challenges to keep Russian and Chinese influence at bay? Oh, for sure, the Draghi government was back on track. He recognized that uh, quite quietly, uh, he recognized, not, not with the official statement, but he tried to push away the Chinese influences uh, uh, in Italy, like using and uh, putting more power to the so-called golden power law, for example, uh, stopping uh, the acquisition by the Chinese of uh, several industries and Italian industries uh, that the Chinese wanted to acquire. But still, and of course, on Russia, with the Ukraine war, the Draghi government was one of the prominent anti-Russian and to support the uh, Ukraine in Europe. When the Draghi government fell and Giorgia Meloni won the elections, we talk a lot about the potential continuity between Draghi and uh, Giorgia Meloni. And um, we saw, we noticed a very hawkish approach by Giorgia Meloni during the, the electoral campaign on China. That was very interesting because he made a meeting with a Taiwanese representative here in Italy. No one during an electoral campaign did that. For example, he made an interview with the Taiwanese media and he said, we have to have a more tough approach on China. But after she became a prime minister during this couple of months of her government, we saw a more nuanced approach again with China. She went to the G20 one month after he went to government, and the first two people she met was Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. And the readout of their conversation between Meloni and Xi Jinping was very, very tender compared to the others uh, EU representative who made the same bilateral with Xi Jinping. So we think that uh, the analysts here in Italy 
and what we see, what we are watching, is that they were using uh, this hawkish approach on China uh, during the electoral campaign, but then now they are trying to do a more ambiguous approach with China after the election. We will see because they, they promised to have um, to, to use the golden power like the drug, like previous government, like the drug, drug government. And they promise also not to renew the Belt and Road Agreement. We have to send a letter to the Chinese institutions three months before the March 2024. And we have to see if Giorgio Meloni will be at that time uh, still uh, prime minister. And we have to see if the, the promise will be concrete, if they will send this letter to the Chinese officials, because they are very, very worried of the consequences of that and the retaliation by the Chinese on the Italian industries and the Italian bilateral business connections. So we will see. Draghi was not a political figure, so he could do whatever he wants, basically, because he had no political approach. He had no to, he didn't have to build a consensus on him, on himself. For Giorgia Meloni, it's a bit different. And she has still some forces that support her, the league led by Matteo Salvini, who are very ambiguous on Russia. So it's not exactly the clearest government on China and Russia, but we improved the situation since 2020. I mean, since the Conte government, for sure. Okay, so we're going to almost leave it there. We're coming to the end of this show, unfortunately, although there's a lot to say. And obviously you, what you just said opens the question to the, you know, we talked about, political elite capture or political influence, but there's also economic influence that is that is then transformed into into political influence. And that might be the subject of an, another podcast. But before I let you go, because I see that we're running short on time, I'm going to invite you, Julia, like my other guests, to take part in a lightning Q&A session. It's very simple in principle. I'm going to ask you three very, very short questions, and I will ask you to provide three very, very short answers. Yes, no, couple of words, nothing more. Is this okay for you? Yes. Great. So let's go. Question number one. Has the Italian economy gained anything from being part of the Belt and Road Initiative? No. Question number two. What was the most significant measure introduced by the Italian government to counter Russian and or Chinese influence? I would say the golden power. Okay. And question number three. Is Italy now safe from Chinese or Russian influence on its soil? No, absolutely not. Okay, so we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, Julia, for your time. If you enjoyed this show and read or speak Italian or both, I really advise you to get to your favorite bookstore and to buy uh, this book, Al cuore dell'Italia, come Russia e Cina stanno cercando di conquistare il paese. It's an incredibly informative and interesting book co-written by our guest, Julia Pompili, together with uh, Valerio Valentini. I personally read it and I found it both uh, accessible 
all, including for my rotten Italian, and uh, very, uh, very interesting, very informative. You can also follow Julia's work on Twitter. She's at Julia Pompili. On our side, we haven't moved, and you should follow us at IRI Global, at Think Atlantic, and obviously on our website, www.iri.org. This is the end of today's episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. Many thanks to Romain Lequinio, Tomasz Mochko, and Andras Brown for uh, producing this series. We will be back in two weeks for the last episode of the year, our traditional Christmas special with IRI President Dan Twining. We'll be taking a look back at 2022, so don't miss this discussion. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show and, of course, share it with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Thanks a lot for listening in and talk to you soon.